In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Beloved Orthodox Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have come to the celebration of the Palm Sunday, or rather twin feasts of the resurrection of Lazarus by our Savior and then his glorious entry into Jerusalem. At the beginning of the, before we begin the Holy Week, before we begin to pass through the Holy Week with our Savior through the days of his passion, these are the twin feasts that we celebrate because they happened right before our Savior's Passion Week. So first was the resurrection of Lazarus that we celebrated yesterday. And that was the greatest miracle that our Savior wrought. Of all the things that he had done when he became man, of all the miracles, of the healings, of the signs that he had done, the resurrection of Lazarus was the greatest one. Because other two resurrections we witness in the life of our Savior, what were two other apart from the one of Lazarus. The, uh, one was of the little girl, the daughter of Jairus, who had just died. And she was uh, put in the, she was still on the bed in the room when she had died. And our Savior rose her from the dead. And the second was the son of the widow of Nain, who was taken out from the, from the city to be buried. Those two other occasions that we know of, there are many that we don't know of and they were not recorded in the, in the books of the Gospels. But the greatest of among them, greatest miracle ever wrought, not only by a, in, in the Gospels, but throughout the history of the mankind, was the resurrection of Lazarus. And why? Because this case, beloved Christians, the resurrection of this man was beyond hope. His case was beyond hope. It wasn't that he had just died. It wasn't that he was just being carried out to the burial. He was buried for four days. And as his sister Martha said, he stinketh already. The composition has started. Corruption has entered. How is it that we're going to remove now the stone of the grave? That is, his case was beyond hope. And yet, our Savior made sure that he wasn't there when Lazarus would die. So that this sign would be the final seal and confirmation of the living words of salvation that he had spoken throughout his ministry on earth, that he is the life and he is the resurrection. And that where there is life and resurrection, death and corruption flee. And so our Savior, we can notice that throughout his ministry, always was careful not to publicize his many miracles. And but this case... He wants people to see it. He wants people to witness it. He makes sure that people are there to see why is the, the resurrection of Lazarus. What, why is this difference between other miracles and this one? Because at the beginning of his ministry, our Savior didn't want the pe people to believe and follow him because his miracles. To be enthused because somebody does miracles and to follow him because of that. Because when somebody starts following another person because of wondrous deeds that he does, that belief is shallow. It won't last. That is what we see throughout the lives of our Savior and, and of the saints. So where does the faith come from? Why, should, why did the people that did follow our Savior with full heart, how did they follow him? It wasn't because of miracles, but because the power of his words. Because the faith comes through hearing, as the Apostle Paul tells us. The seed of faith doesn't come from miracles. It comes from truly believing the living uh, words of our Savior. 
And those words are planted inside our heart, and there they if they find, if they find a proper uh, soil, then they blossom. That is where faith comes from. And that is how our Savior wanted people to follow him, by believing the truth of his words, by accepting and receiving the gospel deep down in their hearts, and not simply to be dazzled by the miracles that he did. That is why we see many times that our Savior heals somebody, and he tells, don't tell anybody, I did it for you. Go and give glory to God. Because it's not because of miracles. He did miracles because he's compassionate. He did miracles and healings because he loves humankind and he couldn't resist. He, it was, it's in his nature, compassion. And therefore, every time he saw somebody in need, he did miracles. But the, the reason that he many times said, don't tell anybody, and he did it in hidden it was because he wanted people to follow him, not because of the miracles, but because of the truth and the power of his words, which are spirit and which are life. And we can see this when our Savior spoke those wondrous words of his flesh being the life eternal. And those who eat his flesh will have life, and those who won't eat his flesh will not have life. And many of his disciples even were scandalized and left him. He turned to the apostles 12 and asked them, Shall you also leave me because of these words? And St. Peter came forward and said these beautiful words, Where shall we go, uh, Lord? For you have the words of eternal life. So we can see, he didn't say, where shall we go because we saw you resurrect the dead? Where shall we go because we saw you heal the, uh, the lepers and so forth? No, those were secondary for Peter and for the apostles. The important thing is that they followed our Savior because he possessed the words of life. No other, had, is, is there, there is no other source for the words of life but our Savior. But here, in, in, in times of resurrection of Lazarus, he does something else. He wants people to, to witness it. And why? Why the difference? The difference is because before his passion, after he had accomplished everything, after he had preached, after he had delivered all the things to people or to show them who he is and where, what is the road way to salvation, he wanted this to be the confirmation, the seal for those who do believe already, and it also to be a condemnation for those who did not accept his words. Therefore, the resurrection of Lazarus was like a seal on all his deeds, all his miracles, all, all his works that he did, did our Savior put as a seal for those who already believe, for them as a confirmation, the sign, as a rejoicing, as an additional seal on their faith. But those who did not believe, for them it was a further condemnation, for they not only did not believe the words of our Savior, but were, they were convicted by this wondrous sign wrought by this man in whom they did not believe. I said that resurrection of Lazarus was the greatest of miracles. Greatest of miracles except one, save one, which is the greater, far greater miracle than the resurrection of Lazarus. It is the resurrection of our Savior himself, let us ask, therefore, what was the difference between the resurrection of Lazarus and the rising of our Savior? The difference was, beloved Christians, that Lazarus was risen from the dead, but to die again at a later stage. That is, he was snatched out from Hades, from corruption, for a while. And, but at the end of his life, sometime, he had to pay his dues 
to death because we all owe to death. Why? Because we are sinners. We have sin and we are not, nobody's free from sin. And therefore, the wages of sin is death and everybody has to pay this ultimate uh, wages to, uh, uh, to sin, which is death. And therefore, our Savior resurrected Lazarus for a consolation, for a sign of his power and consolation for his sisters, Martha and Mary. But Lazarus, at a certain time afterwards, died again. Therefore, he is one of the few people that have, the elder always remarked, there's two graves in this life. One from which he was resurrected in, in, in Bethany, and the other where he died again in, in Cyprus, of where, where he became uh, a bishop. But not so a savior. A savior, when he rose from the dead, rose to never die again. He just didn't simply wasn't snatched out from death. No, he destroyed death because his, his body became incorrupt entirely. Death could not hold a savior because it couldn't find anything that belonged to it. That is sin. And because it couldn't find anything of it, our Savior's death was not only unnatural, it was unfair, and death could not hold it. And therefore, our Savior allows death to happen over him in order to destroy death, in order to trample upon it by his resurrection. And once our Savior rises, rises to be incorrupt unto eternity. His body not only rose from the dead, but became source of incorruption and life and salvation for everybody who will partake of that body, which is what we do when we partake of the body and blood of our Savior. Therefore, our Savior rose, not only escaping death by, like Lazarus to die again, no, far be it that we think such a thing, but rather he arose trampling down death, by his death, he rose never to die again and forever to have the incorruption of his body with him, which is when he sits in here at the right hand, and to have for us to be able to share in this incorruption by partaking of that very body when we partake of the mysteries of the body and blood of our Savior. We said, beloved Christians, that our Savior did this. Uh, a miracle, and because of that, after the day after this miracle, when he started to enter into Jerusalem, people started to rejoice, especially the little ones who uh, always get excited uh, on a minimal uh, occasion. Therefore, they got excited because they heard that the dead man had arisen by the power of our Savior, and those of the good disposition among the inhabitants of Jerusalem also came out with branches of palms like we do to welcome our Savior's coming. What was the reason of our Savior's triumphal entry into Jerusalem? Because we always know that our Savior was humble, was meek, he was, he was discreet, and he never try, wanted to show off. But here we see that he makes sure that he triumphantly enters into Jerusalem, and not in an ordinary way, but acclaimed as a king. Because Hosanna, when people started to welcome him, glory to God in the highest, Hosanna in the highest, and, and called him the son of David, that meant that they were acclaiming him as a king, but not an ordinary king. He didn't enter into Jerusalem as a king with, with a, a kingly, earthly pomp and circumstance. No, he entered sitting on a little donkey. What was the significance of that? Why did our Savior do that? Because, beloved Christians, to fulfill that prophecy that was written in the book of Zechariah, fear not, it says, daughter of Zion, which is Jerusalem, for thy king cometh meek 
and sitting on the colt of an ass, that is, a donkey. Therefore, it was clear who would be this king that would be deliverer of uh, Jerusalem. He was the son of David, like our Savior was, but he would come in a certain way. Yes, he would be acclaimed as a king, but he wouldn't come with the regalia of the king. He wouldn't come with soldiers that the kings have. He wouldn't come on a chariot and drawn by many horses. No, he would come meek and humble, riding a little donkey, like unlike any other king. And therefore, when our Savior did this, the entrance, everybody understood that this was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Zacharias, of who, how would the Messiah come to Jerusalem. He would come to Jerusalem from Bethany, that is, from the west, for another prophecy says that he would come from the west, entering to Jerusalem, but riding on a little donkey as a meek person, king, yet not like earthly kings, a meek king, a humble king. Therefore, we see that our Savior did triumphal entry because of that to make sure that this prophecy and every prophecy about the Messiah's coming would be fulfilled. And people, I said, acclaimed him, saying, Hosanna in the highest. And yet, six days later after this, we hear other shouts of the people. And what are those shouts that we hear? That same city of Jerusalem that acclaimed our Savior as the king and said, Hosanna in the highest, six days later, shouted other words. And those words are, crucify him, crucify him. What a terrible tragedy befell old Israel, beloved Christians, that they would utter such words about their Messiah, the Messiah of the world. Crucify him, crucify him. And that is why, Many saints, especially Elder Hieronymus, somebody whom many of our elders in the Metropolitan knew, writes this, beautiful, this, this insightful thing that there's nothing more fearful than changeability of men. And we can see it right in the Gospels, that many of the same people that had acclaimed Hosanna in the highest six days later just followed the flow of what the high priests were saying and started to shout, crucify him, crucify him. That was the fall of Jerusalem. That is why our Savior wept over Jerusalem when he was descending from the Mount of Olives and when he saw the the city in front of him in the temple. And so he wept and said that how many times I tried to bring you in like a hen brings in the chicken that is under my wings, under my protection. And you would not because every time our Savior would send to Jerusalem the prophets, the prophets would be rejected and stoned and tortured and killed by the Jews themselves. And not only that, but he wept because he saw that they would kill even the God of the prophets who came to them. Not only a mere prophet, but God who had been sending to them prophets and now became men. They would crucify and kill him as well. Therefore, he wept over the fall of Jerusalem. But let us ask, why? Why did it happen that the, the old Israel fell into this calamity? Why could it not recognize the true Messiah and our Savior? Because, beloved Christians, he was not the kind of Messiah they wanted. And that is the key thing we should take away from today's uh, homily. That is not the Messiah they wanted. What kind of Messiah they wanted? They wanted a general, a leader, an earthly king who would bring an earthly victory, an earthly kingdom to Jerusalem and Israel. 
But our Savior didn't promise anything of the sort. He promised he was a meek person and humble. He was not going to proclaim himself a king of Israel and to wage battles and wars and to give earthly victories to Israel. No, he was not. His gospel was and his kingdom is not of this world. It is heavenly kingdom. Therefore, that was not the kind of messiahs that the Jews wanted. Because for a long time already they had perverted the law and the prophets. And instead of seeing what kind of a Messiah, what kind of a person Messiah would be, they started to follow false teachings, dreaming not of the kingdom of God, but rather of the earthly kingdom, of political gain, of victory over other nations and so forth. And since our Savior not only did not deliver this to them, but rather abraded them for perverting the law and not seeking witches on high, but rather earthly things, that is why they rejected him. And that is the fall of Israel, old Israel. They had perverted the true religion of their fathers into a political, ethnic ideology. And that is why they couldn't recognize our Savior, who didn't preach any such thing when he came to earth. And what's happened, if it happened to all Israel, beloved Christians, we should, be, we should be careful because it can happen to the new Israel as well, that is, uh, Orthodox Christians. And that is uh, the, one of the greatest risks that Orthodox Christians run without even realizing it. Because if the old Israel was tricked into rejecting the true Messiahs because of some kind of political, ethnic uh, 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 ideology that they had embraced, it is also very likely that the new Israel will be tricked into believing him who is called the Antichrist. And we should remember this very clearly. The Antichrist who is to come, he is after Orthodox Christians. He is the one that wants to pervert and wants to lead astray even those who are chosen. That is, Orthodox Christians. And the fathers tell us, especially Sanigrati Branchaninov, who was the great father of the Russian church in the 19th century, he said that few will be among Orthodox Christians which will be able to discern and resist the temptation of following Antichrist. Just imagine this, that few will be that will be able to resist. And one may ask, how? Why? How is it possible that we who know what the faith is, we who know who our Christ is, and we who know what are the wiles and the deceits of the devil and Antichrist, how is it that among Orthodox Christians people will be so blinded that they won't be able to recognize the trick of Antichrist and will follow him? How? Well, let us remember how did it happen to Israel. And we will understand. If our faith, beloved Christians, becomes a political ideology instead of being the true faith, then we will give all the chances to the Antichrist to trick us into following him. And what do I mean by this? Here in the United States, because, and here in our church, because of the diligence of our late metropolitan, of our elder and so forth, we are shielded from these ideas and theories which are prevailing in the old countries, in Greece, in Russia, in Georgia, in Serbia. And what do I mean by this? You know, see people, parishes, the whole bishops who are orthodox, and yet, what is it the majority of the time they preach about? 
They preach about some kind of nostalgia about the old glorious days of their country's history, how there were orthodox kings and there were orthodox bishops and everything was fine, the good old days. And they reminisce and, and they have nostalgia over this. And all they talk about is this about some glorious time in the past and also how we should bring about this glorious future for uh, the nations. Not only that, they have concocted some kind of prophecies, false prophecies about that there will be another empire or like the, uh, the one of the Byzantine Empire, Constantinople will become orthodox again and Tsar will return to Russia. And you can see that people who come to church, instead of talking about repentance, instead of talking about fasting, instead of talking about uh, prayer, and instead of having all their hopes on the kingdom on high, they are fed with these false notions, with these false ideas. So that at the end of the day, a person might have passed years, decades in the church, and all he talked and thought about was about some illusionary, imaginary future kingdom which will be the victory of their nation over the enemies and so forth. Beloved Christians, this is the risk that we run because the one who will deliver Constantinople, the one who will deliver uh, uh, kingdoms that are, you know, moral and they are, they are like semblances of the old King Orthodox kingdoms, the one who will be himself the king to lead this kind of people, will be Antichrist. That will be the offer that people won't be able to resist. Imagine when the Orthodox Christians, so-called, that been fed on these ideas all their lives, when somebody comes around and actually delivers all this to them. Who will be able to resist? Who will be able to say, no, I discern that this is a deceit. I don't want earthly kingdoms. I don't want Hagia Sophia. I don't want a new Tsar in Russia. I don't want, I want my Christ and I want the heavenly kingdom because my Christ did not promise these things to me, although historically valid they may be. He promised us suffering. He promised us persecution. He promised us the kingdom of God. Therefore, we can see how wily is the devil and how wily is the Antichrist that he will actually offer to Orthodox Christians those things on which they've been fed for decades or now and maybe even centuries. That is why we should be careful not to fall in the same trap, beloved Christians, not to make out of our faith a political ideology, not to fill our heads with senseless, imaginary future or past kingdoms. That is not why we are Christians. That is not why our Savior suffered on the cross for us. Is that why our Savior suffered for us, that his followers should be thinking of setting up some kind of transitory kingdom on this earth? It's shameful to even think of that. And yet, millions upon millions of Orthodox have fallen into that trap. Let us be careful, beloved Christians, then, and let us hold on to that discerning criterion that we will be safe from the wiles of the Antichrist if we have no hopes in this earth, if we have no, we don't want any promises in this earth, if we do not want to set up any kind of kingdoms and any political or ethnic vindication of victories on this earth, but rather we seek the kingdom to come, our priority is to get to be citizens of that kingdom already here in order to be able to inherit it 
once we, once we pass from this life. If we have this criterion and reject any other, any other theory, idea, that puts our, our, our focus on kingdom of God as a secondary thing and promises us some, you know, earthly victories. Yes, victories not of, of, of an egotistical kind, victories for the, our nations, victories for the society, victories and vindications for our own people. Anything of like that that puts the kingdom of God as secondary and puts those victories as primary comes from the devil. Do not believe it. Be careful and have this as your, be on your guard. That if the old Israel fell because of this, we are not, uh, who are we to think that we will not be tempted to, by such offers? But rather let's seek the kingdom of God and its righteousness and all else shall be put in its place. This is what our Savior expects from us. That is why he shed his blood for us, that we should seek him. Nothing else in this life, not everything else will be given what is needed. Therefore, especially on this day of our Savior's triumphal entry, let us set our eyes on him and let us rejoice in his triumphal entry so that by this assurance that he is our God and Savior, we will enter to be with him through the Passion Week, to be with him when he was mocked and crucified and died on the cross so that together with him we may also rejoice in his resurrection. Amen. Let us all say with our whole soul and without our mind, let us say. I did. Yeah, sure.